Hey, sister. Welcome back to the Your Sorority Journey podcast, and thank you so much for deciding to tune in again. I am very excited for this week's episode because I'm sure, like many of you, one of our most valuable communication tools that we have access to are our words. If you know me, if you're a sister friend of mine or have been tuning into the podcast for a while and feel like you kind of get me, you know that the words that I choose are really important to me. Intentionality is a big value of mine, and so using that intentionality with the words that I choose in conversations or in education or just chatting with you all on the podcast or on Instagram is super, super important to me. I asked Christina Parlay, a rock star sorority woman, um, to join us today because a lot of the work that she has done and most of her passion in the higher education space is actually around language. Christina and I met a few years ago in the middle of West Texas when I walked into Sigma Kappa's preference ceremony just minutes before they invited potential new members into their room. I was working with that chapter as a leadership consultant, and Christina was working on their recruitment team. And immediately, I could tell that the way she worked with this wo- these women was different than any other advisor touchpoint than they might have had. Having stayed connected with her over the past couple years, I've seen her heart and her passion for the words we use and our language in DEI work and was so excited to have her on today to really dig into the power of language, the way our words carry, especially as we have experienced an awakening, as she'll call it. Our sorority organizations and chapters are experiencing this awakening of how to be more intentional about cultivating more diverse, inclusive spaces in our chapters. And I believe that Christina is going to leave you with some really tangible takeaways that you can go and implement with your sisters as soon as you stop listening to this podcast or as soon as you all gather together back in the fall, whatever form that may look like. I'm excited for you to get to know Christina. Maybe have a pen and paper or your notes tab open in your phone today. This is going to be a good one. Here's Christina. Christina, welcome to the Your Sorority Journey podcast. This is so fun to have our worlds collide and get you on today. Yes, absolutely. Thank you for having me. Okay, so tell me about your day. I know it's been like super eventful, so I would love to hear about it. Yes. So I actually took a half day today from my professional job because my little brother, um, who is 10 years younger than me, is getting his first tattoo. Um, He turned 18 in the middle of quarantine um, and had always intended to get a tattoo for his birthday, but of course was unable to do that on his actual birthday um, due to kind of uh, the state of reopening of tattoo parlors. And so um, he's been working on what the tattoo is going to look like and the drawing and all those things. And so finally was like, I'm going to do it. And so I took a half day today. Me and my mother um, joined him at the tattoo shop. So as soon as I'm done, chatting with you tonight. I'm going to go back there because he is doing seven hours. Um, oh my gosh. Yeah. In order to finish the tattoo and save money on it. So <laughs> yeah. 
Oh my gosh, Christina, that that's so funny because when you said you'd had a crazy day and then we were like working out tech difficulties, I had no idea that you had left him. Yes, <laughs> I, yes. I figured for sure you guys had finished up today. That's so funny. Right, right. No, I um he has been a trooper. They started at like 1 p.m. my time, so I'm in central time. Um, and he is still going. Um, but yeah, so I, I had a couple of meetings, this one included. And so I was like, I'll be back when I'm done. <laughs> yeah. Priorities. Absolutely. Yes. <laughs> well, that's so awesome. This is, I'm just super excited to get to chat with you today. And so I'm glad that we were able to like move schedules around to make this happen. Like of all places we met in the middle of West Texas and, yes. uh, <laughs> Now get to like bring you on the podcast and talk about your sorority journey. So thank you for making time despite like everything that's happening in your life and your family's lives. So this is going to be really fun. Yeah, absolutely. Again, thank you for having me. It was it's super funny when you had reached out to me because I remember reaching out to our sister, Jessica Cunningham and being like, wait, didn't you just, weren't you just on this podcast? And so super pumped <laughs> to be asked. So. Oh my gosh, of course. Well, I I tell people who are like watching the guests like get announced and the episodes launch and stuff uh, that I'm really trying to space out my Sigma Kappa guests and my Arizona State guests for yes. just like a variety of perspectives. But you know, I do have a special place in my heart for both. So you are one of my sweet dove sister friends who yes. uh, is getting into the mix. But Obviously, I know you and I'm excited that you're here, but I want our listeners to get to know you a little better. So why don't we just start off um, with your sorority journey? So uh, wherever you want to take that, you have free reign, but we'd love to hear your collegiate experience through continuing to work in the higher education field. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, So I... Am was, I don't know what is the appropriate term there, um, a first-generation college student. Um, and so I, I didn't really initially want to go to college. Um, and my mom was like, that's cute. You're going to go. And I was like, okay, great. Um, and so I ended up at the University of Central Missouri. A lot of people don't know this part of my story, but when I first started at the University of Central Missouri, I actually, um, with my roommate, had intended to join an honors fraternity um, that was co-ed and had gotten into that process and ended up not joining. Um, And part of that I actually think was due to um, how they had felt about my roommate, but also potentially um, some of my identities uh, got in the way. And there may have been some bias, I think, that people were actually experiencing in the uh, process of me joining or attempting to join that organization. Um, And so that had kind of taken up what I would say was kind of my first year or two in college. And as I said, you know, as a first generation college student, I didn't know, I didn't understand sorority and fraternity, like had no idea going in what that even meant. And honestly, couldn't even tell you that I had some like preconceived idea, right? Because it wasn't like, I mean, I literally to the, to this day have not seen the movie Animal House, right? Like I just, that was never in my <laughs> repertoire of like things Same. that I understood. Yes. I'm like, I don't know what that means. Um, and so by, in my freshman year, I actually got involved in student government um, and 
through student government, I ended up running for the vice president of the student body. And at that time I was, gosh, what was I? I was, it was at the end of my sophomore year. And I actually um, was very intentional at that point about reaching out to members of sororities and fraternities to campaign. Um, And so through that process, I I literally distinctively remember going into the um, Alpha Omicron Pi chapter meeting to like, you know, campaign and try to get people to vote for me. Um, And then remember, you know, a lot of one-off conversations that I had with Panhellenic women about uh, sorority and sorority recruitment and just really thinking like, these kind of seem like my kind of people, like this seems like my vibe and how have I, wow. not you know, up until this point. And so I remember standing like in a line somewhere and talking to a Panhellenic woman and her saying like, oh yeah, like you should totally do it. Come out in the fall for recruitment. And so this was actually the fall of 2012. So I went through recruitment as a junior in college. um, And we had, gosh, I think six sororities on the campus at the time um, and kind of had a ball. I met uh, a friend of mine who actually ended up being in my new member class who was um, above 30, was married, had tattoos down both sides of her arms. And we both ended up joining Sigma Kappa um, because the Delta Eta chapter of Sigma Kappa was really inclusive in a lot of ways um, of people who were just not mainstream, typical sorority women and not in a negative way, right? Not in a, we all kind of just ended up here, but I I think in some ways it was intentional. Now the chapter has kind of Hmm. gone up and down in a lot of ways, um, but I think they were always looking for people to help um, like kind of change it up or make them better. And so I ended up joining um, Sigma Kappa during the primary recruitment of fall 2012. Um, And then, uh, you know, it was a very fascinating process to do that with women who were two years younger than me. Um, But I am, I always tend to be, always tended to be the youngest person in my grade because I'm a June baby. So I was always kind of an age the year under me. So I ended up being the vice president of scholarship during my time in Sigma Kappa. Um, and we also went through a, a bit of turmoil actually around hazing um, in my time in the chapter. Um, and so there was a lot of change um, in my experience. And then I think I was, I loved Sigma Kappa so much, but I was very frustrated with my chapter experience. Um, but I think that's the kind of stuff that drives me. So when I decided to go to Penn State, uh, one of the first things that I had done to kind of build community was to reach out to the Sigma Kappa people there. Um, Mm. And a woman by the name of Michelle Yard, and then another woman by the name of Jen Stevenson kind of took a chance on me, um, let me be the public relations chair advisor. And then the main chapter advisor had to take a step back and they took a chance on me. And as like a, maybe I was 22, maybe I just turned 22, um, allowed me to be the chapter advisor, uh, for a big chapter, (laughs) um, in kind of a really campus. Right. Um, and so I served as the chapter advisor for our Theta Psi chapter at Penn state, um, for the rest of my grad school year time. So it was maybe a year and a half 
Um, and then I left Penn State after I graduated with my master's in higher education with an emphasis in student affairs and went to North Carolina and was a fraternity and sorority advisor there and actually continued to serve the uh, National Organization of Sigma Kappa as uh, what we call basically like a specialized collegiate coordinator um, for our chapter at the University of Hartford because they were having significant issues um, around risk and hazing and those kinds of things. And then once my time with them was done, uh, it's kind of how I you know, had my path to meeting you. Um, and I started working yeah. with our chapter at Angeles State in Texas in recruitment. And then I also work with our chapter at the University of Maryland in recruitment. So um yeah, that is so, I said so much, but that's like my Sigma Kappa journey uh, with a little yeah. bit of red pieces sprinkled in there. <laughs> wow. Well, you really took like the path less traveled, right? Like yeah. I've never heard of a trajectory like that, especially some women look at not a full four-year experience as like not a full sorority membership, but like, look at how much you can do after you graduate, right? Like, yeah there is so much power in no matter how much time as you have as a collegian to make a difference and impact after you graduate. And I would love to go back to that time period between you graduating and not being like super thrilled with your chapter experience to, I just moved to Pennsylvania. I'm a grad student here. How do I stay involved while I connect with sisters? Like, what was that motivation to stay connected to Sigma Kappa, even though you hadn't had the most positive chapter yeah. experience? This is such a fascinating question, Cassie, because um, so this is a controversial thing that I'm getting ready to say. But a lot of people, when they talk about recruitment, teach that people join people. Um, and although I think that's true to an extent, you don't retain people who join people when the people that they joined for either leave or f decide to hate it or whatever it may be. Um, and I think I really joined Sigma Kappa because I love Sigma Kappa. Um, wow. And I really, I think we have to start finding, well, utilizing that mindset in recruitment more often. Um, because there were times when I hated everybody, <laughs> but I remembered how much I loved Sigma Kappa and what she brought to me. Um, and I think that's what kept me around. Although my time in the chapter had a lot of hilarious, ridiculously amazing times, there were a lot of trying times. And I think I was able to reflect on all of the good things um, that I was able to do and learn and give back while I was there, that I wanted to be able to help another chapter continue that same experience. Um, and Theta Psi, our Penn State chapter, was in a tough spot when I got there. And so I also, I truly believe, um, you know, Shirley Chisholm, who was a Black woman, she was the first um, Black woman in Congress and then the first Black person to run for like a the president, United States president in any party says um, something to the effect of service is the rent we pay to live on earth. And so it's very mm. much my motto as a person is that um, my service to others is super, super important. And so I think I just wanted to give back, right? Um, in a way that I didn't feel like we were given in my chapter experience. We didn't have a lot of advisor support. Um, and the advisor support that we did have was typically filled with tension um, as an experience. And so, yeah, I think I think that's what I would say about 
my motivation behind continuing to serve. Wow. That gives me chills because, I mean, having been a leadership consultant, having been a super active collegiate officer while I was at Arizona State, you hear that phrase a lot that people join people, but people join people doesn't point us in the direction of retention or lifelong membership, right? Right. Um, Well, it's so funny to hear you say that too, because relationships, well, on StrengthsFinder, connectedness is my number Mm. one, like every time. Relationships are everything in my life. But there were times that I felt just like you as a member that I was like, what if I just quit tomorrow? Like no one likes me. Everyone is like upset with this decision I made as a, in my officer position, like I'm done. But I would never leave the organization that shaped my life, right? Sure. And I think it's so interesting to hear you say that because I know there's women that feel that way, that feel like Pi Beta Phi is my life, right? Or whatever organization it is, like this organization has built me because some of those relationships will come and go just naturally. Um, Right. Either you having a falling out during college or you just go separate ways after you graduate there's still this tie to the organization holistically that I think I'm really glad you pointed that out. That would, I mean, I didn't know what you were going to say when I asked you about your motivation, but that's never something I would have assumed. So thanks for bringing that up. That's super, super insightful. Yeah. And I think the one thing that's super important, like, um, you know, I had a bit of a falling out um, when I was leaving the, well, actually it actually must have been right after I graduated uh, because that was when Michael Brown had died in Ferguson, Missouri. Um, mm. And I had some pretty unfortunate conversations with some of my sisters, but I, I can't explain enough how some of my closest relationships now are with women who I was either in the chapter with at the time or women who I've just met along the way. Right. Um, mm-hmm. in Sigma cap, I mean, my, my, literally my, I have two, what I would call very close, close friends, um, who are women and one is a Sigma Kappa, one is not, but I was in the chapter with her. Um, I just went to one of my chapter sister's weddings. Um, I talked to my grand little yesterday, like, you know, and so yeah. I still very connected, but it's just with a, a small subset of people. Right. And I think the beauty about that is, is, you know, college is really a time to have tons of friends and to know tons of people. Um, but as you get older, one, you don't have the capacity for as many people as you did in college. Preach, um, yes. Yeah, but it's just the truth. You know, I think a lot of times our families maybe growing up said, you know, um, the, the less friends, the better. Or as you get older, you will have less friends. And some of, I think, my truest relationships um, were born out of my Sigma Kappa experience, both as an undergraduate, but also um, as an alum, you know, as an alumna now. So for sure. Yeah. Mm. Well, I, a couple of weeks ago, and honestly, we've been doing the podcast long enough that I can't remember all of them or like where all of these conversations came from. But we had that conversation about, it might've been Tori talking about things you learn when you graduate, but it is interesting how you go from trying to please all these people and maintain all these relationships, partially because they're convenient, right? It's the girl that's in the dorm room next door or 
it's your big that lives across the street or whatever. There's They're just so cl- in close proximity to you that those are easier to maintain. But when you go to grad school in Pennsylvania and your sister moves back home to Iowa, wherever, right? It suddenly isn't as convenient and you have to kind of decide like, which one of which of these relationships are the most life-giving that are challenging me and holding me accountable and growing me Absolutely. because those are the ones you want to invest in because those that aren't doing that that worked in college because they were convenient are suddenly not going to work when you are miles thousands of miles apart you know Absolutely yeah no I totally agree You brought up something super interesting about how some of your relationships changed after um, Ferguson. And I would love to hear you talk about the ways are you've seen our chapters or you've interacted with sorority women, um, in reacting to George Floyd's murder and just the protests and changes in perspective that a lot of people have been given in increased education and learning and awareness over the past month. It's been really interesting to see the I would say new stance that our sororities have vocalized and I would just love to hear your thoughts on it. I'm going to leave it vague so you can go yeah. with it where you want. Um, yeah. yeah. I would just, especially have, have hearing you bring that up and how that shaped your end of your collegiate experience. Yeah. Oh gosh. So much to say. So I didn't say this of course at the beginning, but um, I am the director of, Chapter Services in Conduct for Zeta Beta Tau Fraternity, um, which is a historically Jewish organization. Um, and so I still, you know, am in the fraternity and sorority realm. realm. Um, and so I feel like I this is like the constant conversation, right? Because our undergraduates are having to deal with this both in my work professionally, but I also do diversity, equity, and inclusion work. Um, and a lot of that has I actually happen to be in the NPC world. So um, I've worked with a lot of ind- organizations individually and then NPC kind of staff as a group. So I um, I feel like my experience is probably very similar to a lot of young women who are graduating or just did graduate. Um, it's actually kind of weird. I, I would actually almost say the timeline is very similar, right? Um, George Floyd's mm. death happened, you know, our, our sorority women were likely graduating and George Floyd died maybe a couple of weeks later, kind of depending if you're in a quarter system or a semester system. Um, but for me, you know, I graduated in May of 2014 and Michael Brown died in August of 2014. Um, and so the, that inability, especially for graduating women to continue that conversation in the same way that they would have if they would have been coming back is fascinating, Mm. I think. Um, And I guess in the era of social media that it becomes fascinating, right? Because a lot of times you're having those conversations over social media instead of in person and particularly in the global pandemic that we find ourselves in conversations are happening that way much more. Um, But we are, you know, Cassie, truly we're experiencing an awakening. Um, I haven't said this yet either, but I identify as half black, half white. So I identify as biracial. Um, and so it has been fascinating to see, um, young black and brown folks really, uh, embracing 
who they are, how they feel, what they stand for, having their own type of awakening, um, which uh, situations like this can present an opportunity to have a rapid experience and identity development, uh, like a lot of folks aren't even used to or haven't experienced uh, when there is severe trauma in the way that we are experiencing um, as a people, as a nation, coupled with um, non-Black folks, both people of color who are not Black and white people having an awakening around um, what is going on in our country, um, but has also been going on forever <laughs> since the inception yeah. of this country. And I think that that in particular is hard for people to deal with, um, to be really just candid. Um, and so there is a true awakening happening. And I think everybody, you know, when George Floyd passed, it was like, oh yeah, this isn't going to last long. Everybody will be over it in a few days. Um, mm. And, you know, quite frankly, COVID-19 has presented us with an opportunity unlike any other. Um, there's something particularly uh, uh, fascinating about George Floyd's death being in the midst of a global pandemic while, while also being an experience where you had to watch the life leave somebody um, all at one time. Um, I do tell people that a lot of other similar incidents of police brutality have gone quick, right? Um, either they're shot or whatever it may be, and they've passed away. Um, but this was different because everybody's sitting at home. A lot of people, well, not everyone. Let me take that back. Language is important. Not everyone is sitting at home because some people still have to, unfortunately, um, you know, s somewhat put themselves in danger in order to feed their family and feed themselves. But um, many of us are sitting at home and Many of us watched that video um, mm. and probably all almost 10 minutes of it. And so, yeah, so I, I think there's a lot going on. <laughs> there is um, more than I think some people can actually handle, right? Because I think we as a people were experiencing real life trauma um, as humans just with the global pandemic. And then to right. have what feels truly like a second global pandemic um we are all now experiencing together again um in different ways i think um and some for some much more hurtful i think than for others but yeah i i, I don't know that i ever actually answered the question <laughs> that you had um but i think those are my thoughts right like that's that's yeah. how i'm genuinely um looking at the world and thinking wow uh this this feels different and i hope it continues and i will do my best to not let it, not let the moment pass for sure. Yeah. Yeah. I'm not sure there was a specific question there, Christina. <laughs> I think I, I really do appreciate your vulnerability and sharing your thoughts though, because I know these are sensitive and, um, as you say, language is important and I think it's important to honor what you say and how you process things. So thank you for like letting us in on how that's been for you. I, uh, you say that a lot of us are sitting at home, not all of us, but a lot of us are sitting at home just processing this. And yeah. what was so interesting for me in processing this both personally and with a couple others on the podcast over the past few weeks is we have all been pushed to become aware and respond after 
several weeks. I think it was about 10 or so of um, quarantine prior to um, the protest starting and this awakening. I love that word that you chose. Um, 10 weeks of being at home and learning how to pivot and create a sense of routine and normal in a time that's not normal and try to reshape the way we look at our lives and our work and our relationships. And a word that we've used a lot over the past couple of weeks is just re-examination, right? I mean, I think COVID-19 really prompted us to start re-examining our lives and our priorities and hopefully gave us a lot of lessons to take into as we go through phases of reopening that might not go as quickly as we hope. Um, but as they happen, right, there are lessons that I think all of us can say we learned through this that we're able to walk into our next chapter of our lives and jobs and relationships with. But I think that coupled with this awakening of systematic injustice and police brutality and I think to what you were saying about how this has been, this is not a new problem. This has been happening since the inception of our country is really hard for a lot of people to wrap their minds around. Mm -hmm. And it's a lot to process on top of what does my day to day look like next month. Right. And so, yeah, it's been super interesting and I'm, I'm really thankful that you shared your thoughts. There's a lot to pack in there. So Mm -hmm. I, uh, However way you took it, there was no wrong way. That's for yeah. sure. Yeah. And I think the interesting thing about, you know, what you had just mentioned of, um, you know, what is my next day going to look like my next week, my next month, you know, am I going to have a job? Am I not? Who am I going to have to care for or who will not be here with me on this earth anymore? Um, is the reality of what we're experiencing in the global pandemic. Um, but also is a lot of the reason why I think, you know, we're able to see such activism at this time too, is because, we don't have as many obligations in some ways as we used to. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And, or we're not creating as many obligations for ourselves as we used to. And everybody, whether fortunately or unfortunately, right. Is being forced to slow down a bit. Yep. Um, Pay attention. Yeah. Yeah. In a way that we, I mean, even, even for me personally, right. Like if we were, I spent four days, four cons- almost, yeah. Uh, three consecutive and then a fourth day at protests um, early on. And would I have actually ever been able to have done that if this would have been a year ago? Probably not. I would have been on plane to plane, you know, because I traveled a lot. Um, And so even for me, even for people who look like me or feel the way that I do or stand for the things that I do, we are being given an opportunity um, also to um, do the things that we need to do to support our communities. So, yeah. Yeah. Well, and I, I almost hear you say that we have, by slowing down, reprioritized our lives, right? Yeah. And mm-hmm. either voluntarily or not, the things that matter most are what we fill our days with because those are the things that we have to tend to. And this was something that we were now able to tend to because the unnecessary, somewhat distraction, clutter, of our old day to day doesn't exist anymore, right? It's just not an option. Um, and a lot of that clutter and distraction, I think, is also on social media, right? Like that's how a lot of us were filling our days. Um, 
unintentionally prior to mm-hmm. the activism, right? And then we were suddenly able to use a platform that we had used yeah. for all of quarantine really intentionally. Um, so I, I, I love the way you put that. I think that's really insightful. Thank you for sharing. Yeah. Um, I want to pivot here a little bit because you have been doing um, diversity, equity, and inclusion work long before um, this awakening. And so I would love to hear your thoughts on our sorority organizations and chapters statements that they have made, both statements and action plans. And I would just love to hear your thoughts on them, the hopes and growth that's like in our future and like how the, a general sorority woman that's listening could participate. Mm, Oh gosh. So many things. Um, It's fascinating (laughs) that you ask because it's shortly before, let me think about this, shortly before George Floyd's death, but potentially it was either right before or right after we had learned of Ahmaud Arbery's um, murder. Uh, We were doing some education actually with NPC staff around statement culture. Um, And me and my colleague basically had shared with them, like what, what tell me what the point of a statement is, right? Like help Mm. me understand um, what you are using the statement for, because truly Cassie and people may disagree Statements are an optics piece. Um, And a lot of people use statements sometimes to uh, communicate information widely, but many times it's reactionary. And many times it comes from a place of, oh, well, this peer person or peer group or organization did it, so we should probably do it too. Um, Or it's it's responsive in regards to an incident happen. And so now we are responding to that information. (laughs) Um, And so although I think statements are fine, I don't think a statement matters at all without action. So Mm. um, uh, there has been a lot, um, and for those who haven't seen them, um, a lot of Instagrams and Twitters that are popping up around uh, racism, hate, bias, sexual violence, and people telling their stories. And uh, some of these Instagrams and Twitters are calling people out individually. Some of them are calling fraternities out, sororities out individually or organizationally, I guess I should say. Um, And people are like, we got to make a statement. And I'm like, okay, yeah. What are you going to say? Like, what, what, like, what do you want to talk about? Right. Um, Because here's the truth. I do not believe in gosh, I'm just throwing out all the things. I don't believe in cancel culture um, in its in its current format. Um, I I do believe that there are some people who you have to cut ties with. I, I believe that's very true. I believe if you're in an unhealthy um, romantic relationship, that is appropriate. If you have an unhealthy relationship with a family member or friend, whatever that may be, uh, that, that is appropriate. But right now we have gotten into a place where we are canceling everybody, right? So mm, Sister Susie yeah. Q says... Uh, let's say she does a really racist TikTok. Um, nobody said anything, but all of a sudden somebody catches wind of it and calls out XYZ organization. That organization then goes, Oh my God, we have to cancel her membership. She's got to go. 
because they can't think of anything better to do with her mm. um, than to cancel her membership because, and I've heard this more times than I could count, they want to distance themselves from her. And then they want to make a statement. Oh, we expelled Sister Susie Q and we just wanted everybody to know that, right? It's like, a, they're like flexing for, for people. Here's optics. the truth. About, yeah, optics, exactly. And here's the truth about that, Cassie, is that Sister Susie Q likely did something bias, discriminatory, racist a hundred times, if not more, before she got yeah. to the to the racist TikTok, TikTok right? <laughs> yeah. She either said something or did something that everybody heard, everybody saw, some people heard, some people saw, and didn't do anything about it. Um, I liken it a lot to drunk driving. Um, you know, a lot of statistics say that a drunk driver will drive drunk, you know, X amount of times before they're actually caught. And it's the same with this kind of stuff. They have likely done and said things that we have turned a blind eye to, um, and, or just turned our eyes to, I guess blind maybe is not the correct term, but to have turned our eyes to, um, and said, oh, we're not going to say anything, right? We don't want to, we don't want her to be mad or we, we don't know what to say. And so we've normalized that for her. Right. And so if you've ever heard the phrase, what you permit, you promote, yeah, that is the truth, right? Whatever you are allowing to happen in your space, you are effectively promoting. And so your statement you're yeah, like canceling. Bias. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I mean, your statement, your canceling of a membership is nothing to me personally if you're not also doing the work to take responsibility for the men or women or people that you are recruiting. Right. So if Sister Susie Q does something racist, there are probably three or four questions that I would ask myself. Right. What about our chapter culture has allowed her to exist in this way? What about what we've been doing or allowing to happen has said, this is okay behavior. Have we ever done education on this, right? Whether for her or for others. Um, and then I think one of the other big things is we should probably take some level of responsibility for this. Cause at one point we thought sister Susie Q was really cool. Like either in the recruitment process or whatever it was. So we have to take some responsibility for our people, right? Um, yeah. And so in the event that we cancel somebody and make a statement and want to tell everybody how great we are that we canceled somebody's membership, that person gets released back into the world all on their own. No better. Yeah, no better. So the chapter is no better. I, I promise you the chapter is no better because you probably got 10 other people in the chapter who are probably doing the same thing. If you're a chapter over 10, of course. And then you also just sent Sister Susie Q out into the world with no explanation, no conversation, no dialogue, no mm -hmm. education, other than just her to be upset and frustrated and hurt, right? Um, Amy Cooper and Christian Cooper, the two individuals involved in the Central Park incident where Amy Cooper would not put the leash on her dog and Christian Cooper asked her to. And then she did the most um, impressive theatrical number um, in calling the police. I've never um, heard that phrase used, but on this incident, but wow, that, that's a powerful <laughs> statement. <laughs> yeah, it was very theatrical. It's very dramatic. Um, was, you know, in fact, you know, when she, when that video went viral, Christian Cooper came out and said, she lost everything. Right. And, and I don't, 
I don't know if I agree with that. I don't, I don't know how to feel mm. about that. Um, Amy Cooper was getting heard that. death threats, you know? And so, um, Lost is that, job. Yeah, yeah. Every, yeah. Is that, is that what we need? Is that what we're looking for? Now don't get me wrong. There is a very big difference between we're going to cancel Starbucks right? Because they didn't let their people wear anything related to Black Lives Matter. Or we're going to cancel Chick-fil-A because they donate to anti-LGBTQIA organizations or whatever. Because Chick-fil-A and Starbucks still have hundreds of thousands of people, right? Who could check them, right? Of like, hey, maybe I should get your act together. But when we cancel the individual person, Mm -hmm. do we know that they're going to have access to that education anywhere else? Is there anybody else in their life who is going to challenge them? Make them better. Yeah. Yeah. To force them into that commitment to be better. And here's the truth. Let's say you do. You do give Sister Susie Q education. And a couple weeks later, she's still on that particular brand of silliness and ignorance. Um, Or... You know, she just is like, I, I'm not, I'm not down to clown with this, right? Like, I don't, I don't want to do this. Then yeah. you absolutely are able to say, okay, that's great. We appreciate your honesty, and you don't fit um, the standards and values of who we are as an organization. So we are now going to release you of your duties as a member. Um, right. But that's if you haven't even given them the opportunity. Um, I, I'm not sure that you would want that same thing to be done to you. Right. You do that after you give them a chance to make them better. Right. Like I love that sentiment, Christina, because I, I've heard that too. And my organization, our organization, pardon me, is not, um, innocent. I'm trying to think of a better word. (laughs) It's not out of this absolved of this issue. Right. And Mm -hmm. I think that was a really hard thing for me to own a couple of weeks ago when TikTok TikToks were coming out. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And I think it's really hard to own that about your organization. And sister friends that I was talking to were saying the same thing. Like, she just needs to be gone. Like, she just should not be affiliated with us. But I love your perspective because if we're committed to equipping men and women for society as Greek organizations, we -hmm. can't get rid of them without actually following up on what we said we were going to do for them. I mean, think about how hard it is to expel someone financially, right? Like, Mm -hmm. or how hard it is to get someone out of the chapter for GPA, right? Like there, or behavior, like there are so many steps that have to go through. Why would this be any different, right? With Right. And and a lot of that, Cassie, I, I always hearken it back to, um, we understand academics. We understand finances. We have a helpful fix. We know how to educate you on that. We know how to create a plan for you. But because our leadership, both honestly at the chapter uh, volunteer and national level of any Panhellenic or NICIFC organization is woefully under-equipped to create a plan for something like this because Mm -hmm. we haven't been having this conversation, even though really, I think if you dug into most of our history or many of our organization's histories, there'd be a lot of stuff to unpack. Mm -hmm. Um, So now our collegian members are forcing us into the conversation and there's no no resources. 
yet. There's no resources. Nobody knows what they're doing. Nobody has people on staff or high enough volunteers, you know, so everybody's scrambling. And so Mm -hmm. in their moments of scramble, they are in fact doing what? Making statements. Yeah. Because that's easy. Using words. That's quick. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And a lot of that has not been coupled with action or immediate action. But I will tell you, you know, I was the keynote for Sigma Delta Ta's Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion Week. And you killed yeah, it. Was, it. Ah, All the clips you. I saw on Instagram were just fire. You are yeah. so, so incredible at equipping and educating in this space. Thank you for doing that. Yeah, thank you. Well, it was it was fascinating because, you know, at the end of the keynote, I basically gave a charge to alumni, volunteers, uh, leadership and staff, and then collegiate members. And basically what I said is, you know, for the undergraduates in the room, don't expect it quickly, you know, it, anything that your staff or volunteers are going to create is going to take time. If you want it to be intentional, if you don't want it to be harmful, you know, more harmful than what else, what, what is currently going on, you're going to have to give them time. And I said, I said, you don't want your national organization scrambling because when they are scrambling, they're even more likely to make mistakes. And that's exactly what we're trying to avoid. And so I think there is some, this is, it's unfortunate, but there is some belief that like, well, when we demand it, we just assume demanding being on behalf of the collegians and probably even young alumni, we assume that there is going to, there has to be somebody on staff or there has to be somebody within the volunteer structure that gets this. And oh, that is just not true. <laughs> that is mm. just uh, wildly not true and unfortunate to be, be very frank. It is unfortunate, but it is, it is very, very not true. So. Yeah. The other thing I was thinking about when we were comparing or contrasting this from finances or academics mm-hmm. is finances and academics aren't very controversial, you know, like mm-hmm. people know you have to pay dues. People know you have to have a good GPA people are still learning how to be anti-racist, right? And I think that's the the hard thing is we feel super equipped about how to make a payment plan or a study plan because right. it's not it's not a political opinion, you know, right? And I mean, systematic injustice also shouldn't be a political opinion, but somehow it has become and become a very partisan issue. And so I think it's also that statement, that statement culture is very much like, I don't want to be on the wrong side of this is almost how it feels. Here's the truth though, Cassie, organizations now, (laughs) because they're being called on the carpet are having conversations about academics and finances and legacy policies and all those kinds of things. But here's here's the truth, right? When it comes to marginalized um, communities, minoritized communities, underrepresented communities, whatever language you want to use other than just minority, which we can come back to, um, is that socioeconomic status knows no color, knows no sexual orientation, knows no gender. Mm -hmm. And that's comfortable for people. GPA, although there are a lot of ways in which it knows color and knows gender and knows all those things for people who are just thinking about it generally, they don't see it as being tied to one group or another. And that's comfortable. But when you start talking about a subset of humans, it automatically becomes political 
because it feels weird, because it's new, because it's different and different is political, right? But when it impacts everybody, COVID is a great example. When it impacts everybody, it's like, oh gosh, this is, we need to take this seriously. We need to, we need to help fix it. We need to help fix people's GPAs. We need to help fix people's finances um, because it impacts everyone. Um, And so that, that makes it, that makes a huge difference. Yeah. Well, you've hinted at this along our conversation, so I just want to dig into it now. Um, Language is a priority for you in your work, um, professionally, in your personal life, right? You are so intentional with your words. And from what we've talked about and from articles that I've read that you've written, Mm -hmm. it's part of your passion to better educate anyone, right? Not just collegians, not just volunteers, not just staff, really those that you come in contact with about how to be more intentional with the words and the weight of their words. And so I would love it if you would, yeah, just talk about the power of the words we choose, especially coming out of Pride Month in addition to the protests that have happened in June. I would just love to hear your, again, you have the floor, you take this wherever you want it. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah, your perspective on language. Yeah, so it's weird, you know, when you do education on a topic that you're so passionate about, usually there's like some grandiose story that it's like, this is why I love this thing. Um, <laughs> and that, I, I, I can't even explain it. This this passion for language comes from a lot of different places. Um, one story that I think... I have become particularly tied to is in my first year of grad school, where it's important to note that a lot of my racial identity was development was done in grad school. Um, So we're sitting in a student development class um, and I must have, or we as a class must have at some point gotten on the topic of, you know, asking people about their race or ethnicity or any identity, right? And I, as a, particularly as a biracial person, because I get this question a lot, is what are you, right? And really what they mean is you look different than me or you look unique or I can't put my finger on what box to put you into. So what are you? And I remember one of my colleagues in class turning around and saying, okay, so what's the better way to say it? And I said, maybe you could just ask, like, how do you racially identify? How do you identify ethnically? Um, And that's probably one of the first incidents in which I can really remember being like, oh, yeah, yeah, like this, this, yeah, let's talk about it. Like, let's talk about the words that are coming out of our (laughs) mouth. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And then I can, like, feel you getting fired up over there (laughs) in your, like, Penn grad class. Like I just feel it. (laughs) Yes. Yeah. And then the second experience was also at Penn state and it was, I worked in the cultural center there um, for Carlos Wiley, uh, who was the director of the PRCC. And he, I remember people would always kind of, as they would, you know, come and go and they would say, Hey guys, bye guys. And Carlos without a doubt, every single time, if there were mixed genders, right? Like if there were women present or if it was all women, he would always stop the person and say, who are you talking to? Because either not everybody in here is a guy or you are talking to a room full of women and saying, hey guys, or bye guys. 
Um, so that was a huge sticking point for me too. And that is where I tend to start with people. When I talk about language is the term literally, hey guys. Um, and let me, I'll give you three examples of why. <laughs> um, I have a friend who serves part-time and she was serving, uh, I think a group of people and, um, she had put the food down in front of a man or at least a masculine presenting person who she believed to be a man and by accident called him a lady, um, and immediately apologized, right? Like, Oh my gosh, I'm so sorry. Like, I don't know where that came from. I apologize and apologize, apologize, apologize. When I, even just this past year, I was with um, a group of Sigma Kappas for recruitment stuff for days. And then I flew to another city um, and was with my ZBT guys. And they were being loud and obnoxious. And I was trying to get them to quiet down, which I had also been doing with the sorority for days during recruitment. Um, And I said, ladies. And I literally was like, oh, Oh, I am so, so sorry. I did not mean to say that. And they're just all laughing. They're like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I was like, I've been with Sigma Kappa women for days. Um, oh but gosh. I thought to myself, I would never do that for women. And that was the conversation that I also actually uh, weirdly had had with the Sigma Kappa women of like, stop calling each other guys. Because truly, when we use the language guys, we erase women. We erase our experience and we only really uphold the very patriarchal pieces of our society, right? And so when we're doing things like that, we are saying, yeah, I mean, male or man or masculine related languages is the dominant, is that group that we can use for that that language that we can use for everybody. Um, And so I, I... push people to be really thoughtful about their language for several reasons, right? One of them is respect because I think building respect, right? is like a foundational piece of getting to know someone, building relationships, networking, whatever it may be. Um, And so if somebody automatically feels like you have disrespected them or are acknowledging them or caring for them or whatever it may be, you're likely going to have some challenges. Second is like being a leader, right? So people could think I was amazing. And if I get up in front of a crowd and start using a bunch of exclusive or non-inclusive language, I might lose some credibility, right? Some people in the group might not trust me anymore because honestly, in the first few minutes of an interaction, people are asking themselves, you know, unconsciously, is this person safe? Um, can I be around them? Will they judge me? Will mm-hmm. they care for me? And so that your language, right? Yeah. Yes. And your language is leading that first impression, right? And so being a leader, that's really important too. But also people's mental health is highly impacted by language. Um, you know, a lot of people I think have probably heard this, but you know, I, my mom, she works in education. And so she'd always say, you know, if you called a kid stupid for his their whole life, they, they might start to believe that. And I think that's true. You know, if, if I forever heard negative stuff about an identity that I hold, whether it was derogatory stories or jokes or whatever, I might eventually start to believe that. And that may impact the way that I see myself, my abilities, my confidence, whatever that may look like. Um, mm-hmm. And the flip side is, right, if I heard really positive, inclusive things all the time, that would help me, my confidence, my, um, you know, self-worth, all of those things. And so 
I think that's really important. But then I always tell people, if nothing else, right, if you don't care at all about that other stuff, the fourth reason is why not? What makes you so adverse to changing your language that helps other people feel seen and heard and valued and validated, right? What big impact or burden on you is there? Because honestly, Cassie, we've learned our entire lives, you know, the golden rule, treat others how you want to be treated. But the truth is we need to be focused on treating others how they want to be treated. Um, And so I think there's some, we have to come to terms with the fact that just because something doesn't hurt your feelings doesn't mean it doesn't hurt somebody else's. And the thing about words is they're not retractable, right? Once they are out there, they have landed, whether you are signing them, orally saying them, writing them down, it doesn't matter. It's out there. And so you you don't get to decide, right? And I think we had mentioned this a little bit earlier, but intent versus impact is a real thing. So I may say something, right? Like earlier, when I said, everyone's sitting at home, somebody may have said, wow, she is really not thoughtful about the people who have not been sitting at home this whole time. And I may have just quickly lost credibility with a listener because I said that. Um, And so really thinking about my intent was just to really talk about how generally people are sitting at home, but I used language that maybe was very exclusive um, of a specific community or of people who are not able to do that. And so that intent of what I was trying to say does not negate the very significant impact that that could have on other people. Mm. And so everybody has to be mindful of, yes, although your intentions are important, the end of the day, they do not matter when it comes to how it lands on somebody else. And we do not get to be the deciders of if something hurts somebody else's feelings. You know, we've always heard sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. And I always tell people, people are hurt, harmed, and killed at the metaphorical, you know, hands of words, right? Um, uh, Anti-Semitism, kind of anti-hate, um, educator, her name is Deborah Lipstadt. She said something to the effect of, uh, genocide never started with action actions. Mm. It all started with words because that's the truth, right? Wow. Like we don't just start doing things because of an action pretty typically. Um, it always starts with some kind of bias attitude or active bias or, um, you know, uh, motivated or like a bias motivated violent act or whatever. But a lot of those Mm -hmm. things are born out of these things that we hear and we say, and we, um, you know, experience through a language lens. So. Yeah. Wow. That's so powerful. I think the first thing that came to mind when you were talking was when you're talking about intent versus impact, Mm -hmm. how can we, when our intent is pure, but our impact is negative, or when someone else's intent is good and impact is negative, how can we better participate in educating and redirecting? Yes. Or how can how can we be open to being redirected and not participating in cancel culture? Ah, um, uh, yeah. <laughs> this is my favorite part of the conversation, to be really, really honest with you. Um, there, okay, so if you say something that's hurtful, you didn't intend it, apologize. But two things, don't 
profusely apologized. Please do not cry. Um, and then don't burden the other person. So for my Grey's Anatomy fans out there, there is a scene where a woman um, has cancer. She comes in. Um, Dr. Maggie Pierce says, listen, I can get your cancer. I promise. And the uh, patient says, I'm telling you, you can't. And so they go back and forth, go back and forth. And the patient finally says, fine, but don't, you know, don't make me make you feel better when you can't get it. Like don't burden me with that Mm. when you can't get the cancer. They do the surgery. Dr. Maggie Pierce comes out and says, we didn't get it. And the patient's like, it's okay. It's not a big deal. She starts consoling them. And Meredith Gray, the main, you know, um, one of the main actresses in the show says, we just made you do it, didn't we? And she's like, yeah. And that is the truth is a lot of times when we start to apologize to people, we do it so profusely that we burden the person who was actually harmed with making us feel better. Oh, that's right? so good. Um, and so being really careful about when you're apologizing. Um, I'll tell you, I recently, uh, this year actually was misgendering somebody because physically this individual, uh, in my opinion, in, in all of my implicit bias and my automatic associations in my brain, um, presented in in a masculine way. However, they use they, them there. And I remember walking up to them, uh, their tag was out in the back of their shirt. And I said, I apologize for misgendering you tucked in their tag and walked away. And they responded, you Gucci, right? Um, (laughs) And we moved on because it doesn't take theatrics, right? It doesn't take the Amy Cooper theatrics um, to just tell somebody you're sorry. In the event that somebody is saying something to you, I think first getting a better understanding, right? So when I hear something that is negative, I have a few go-tos. My first one is, what do you mean? Um, so when somebody says something that's exclusive, non-inclusive or hurtful, um, particularly to ab- about other people, I will start with, what do you mean? Because that puts the ball in their court to explain the potentially really ugly, harmful, problematic thing that they just said, which will kind of force them into a place to have to unpack it a little bit. Mm. Um, my second one is typically tell me more, right? Um, But my third is really always just to ask questions. I do not believe people learn by saying, you can't say that. You can't do that. Right? Like this visceral kind of reaction of like, oh my gosh, that's not okay. Well, wait, what? Like, let's talk through this. I'm not, I, I, it's unclear to me why it's not okay. Right. Yeah. 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 So I think those in the quickest, you know, ability to tell you, those are the two ways in which I think, you know, if you're saying it or if it's been being said to you how you can help uh, repair the harm quickly, relatively quickly. Um, you might not repair all of it, but you'll repair some of it, or at least do an initial step into repairing the harm. And then also how you can help people understand, uh, hey, what you're doing is problematic, and I'm not going to come from a place of per, you know, um, promoting it or saying it's okay or allowing it to be normal for you. So Right. And repairing yeah. the harm without making it the offended's responsibility to make you feel better about it right like own it uh, own it apologize and learn from it right i christina i've loved loved talking to you today because anyone who listens to this podcast is gonna leave with like pages and pages of notes of tangible takeaways of how they can be better in their chapter or how they can really participate in 
injustice and inclusion Mm -hmm. (laughs) and reconciling injustice and cultivating a better culture of inclusion. And so thank Mm -hmm. you so much for like being so open and vulnerable with your personal experiences and things you've learned. I think as we wrap up, I would just love to hear from you. And like I've said, you've given us so many takeaways, but if there's anything else that you would want to add as like um, a charge or an encouragement really tying in together, like in this season of awakening and as a lot of us are learning and growing through this, or even people of color are learning more about their own identities as you did in grad school, how can they tie that into the language that they use being intentional with those that they come around or as they work through that with themselves? Yeah. Um, so I think the truth is, is, uh, paying attention to the words that you're using and thinking about the root of it or where it came from. Um, so really checking yourself on those kinds of things, I think in regards to, um, language specifically, but I think in general, I would just want people to know who are listening that right now we have a social responsibility to be better, um, for ourselves and for others. Um, this is the moment to not stand by, um, and not say, Oh, I I don't, I don't get involved with that kind of stuff. I I don't get involved with politics. I don't, Mm. you know, whatever it may be. Um, but to actually care enough about other people to be better and to make a commitment to this work, um, I think is wildly important. And I think the last little nugget I would share is that it is not enough to just donate money. Um, donating money does not cleanse your conscience and donating money has to be coupled with action and education. And so I think a lot of people right now are throwing their money at the problem. Um, and if money was going to change the world, the world would already look different. Um, and so really my charge to humans is to educate yourself, educate those around you, disrupt and interrupt problematic stuff and go from there. Oh, so good. Thank you so much. Wow. That's so important and powerful. Interrupt and disrupt (laughs) is probably going to be a quotable from this episode because I think you're right. It's so much more than cleansing our conscience right right now. It's learning not to be absolved, but learning to be a better ally for the women in our chapters, the people in our community who are being impacted right now. So thank you so much for that. And thank you so much for coming on. This was honestly heavy but like kind of fun. Like I just, I, I don't know how you can do both in one episode, but this was honestly so fun reconnecting with you and also a conversation that gave me chills. So thank you for doing that. Not just for me, but for the Her Sorority Journey community. I can't wait to launch this episode. It's going to be a good one. Yes, absolutely. Well, thank you so much again for having me on and for folks who are listening, happy to connect. Please feel free to connect with me on Instagram or Facebook. I have a Twitter, but I don't use it. Um, But please feel free to um, just connect with me. I'm happy to talk with anybody. I don't know what was running through your head as you listened to this episode today. But as soon as Christina and I stopped recording, I said to her, I'm not sure I have ever recorded an episode before that was so fun and also so heavy. There was moments in this episode that truly gave me chills. And 
gave me a new perspective on something that I feel like I've been doing a lot of research on and having a lot of conversations about. Still, this new perspective about the weight of our words and how certain language choices is really hurtful and really burdensome to the people who are actually offended really sat with me. While also being so fun to catch up with someone as vibrant and enthusiastic and passionate as Christina. I want to let you know that Christina does a lot of work in the diversity, including inclusion space. And if you'd be interested in connecting with her about anything she talked about today or about potentially um, having her come educate your chapter or community, her information can be found in the show notes or on Instagram. Thank you all again so much for showing up and really committing to having hard conversations. The past couple weeks of episodes haven't been light, but I think they've been so important and I hope that you found them valuable in better learning and equipping yourself to be a good ally or if you are a woman of color, to feel validated and seen in a space that might not have been doing the best job at recognizing you. Sister, as always, know that you are not alone in what you're experiencing and the unique season that you're in. We are committed to being by your side and supporting you through any season of your sorority journey. If this episode resonated with you in any way, if you found yourself nodding along or saying yes in agreement with what was talked about, we would love to hear from you. There are three ways that we would love to know how this, how this podcast is impacting you and how we can better support you. The first is by leaving a review. When you go to the Your Sorority Journey podcast on Apple Podcasts and scroll down past all the episodes, please leave us a review so that we can know how this podcast and the content is impacting your sorority journey. We would also love it if you would tell your friends so they can get tuned into these conversations. And finally, shoot us a DM. If you have questions, if you would like to hear something, or if you just want to tell us what you think, feel free to shoot us a DM at Her Sorority Journey so we can know how we can best support you on your sorority journey.